everybody. This is Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean. I'm Josh Newfeld of joshcomics.com. And I'm Dean Haspiel of deanhaspiel.com. And this is the podcast where we break down the movie American Splendor, Scene by Scene. And we are going to be talking about Scene 2, which starts with the credits of the film and ends with the real Harvey Picar sitting in a studio talking to the directors of the film and complaining about whether his voice is going to hold out or not. The scene of uh, the first episode in the first scene is when a young child, Harvey Picar, transitions into actor Paul Giamatti, who portrays Harvey throughout most of the film. Paul Giamatti meanders seemingly disgruntled as the credits begin to appear. And then at some point while he's moving around town, the real Harvey walks the streets as well and the credits continue. But then they transition over comic book panels. And in the comic book panels, it starts to explain to the audience through his, you know, the, the text and images that Harvey writes comics about his life and is drawn by different artists, while concurrently in the film, filmmaker credits are shown acknowledging the film adaptation we're about to see. The sequence is scored by a jazz tune, and Cleveland is shown throughout as Harvey's real voice narrates throughout as well. His voice starts to come up at some point, right? Yeah, kind of near the end of the credits. Toward the end of the credits. And then uh, Paul uh, Giamatti is walking through the streets when suddenly there's a smash cut into the real Harvey who has been recording this narration. The entire credit sequence is very meta. Yes. From an, uh, an actor portraying Harvey to comics portraying Harvey to the real Harvey. And actually the real Harvey basically sanctioning all the various iterations of his persona. But before we transition to the next scene, we learn that Harvey Picard likes to drink orange soda Mm-hmm. And that he didn't really read the screenplay. He read it for its construction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, talk about meta. I was thinking, um, you know, normally Harvey writes his own comics and mm-hmm. he has illustrators draw them all mm-hmm. for him. So he's used to being the ultimate control right. figure in the sense that, he, you know, without his stories and without his life having happened, obviously none of these comics would happen. Mm-hmm. And here, the, in a way, the tables are have been turned on him because mm-hmm. the writer and director team are now taking elements from his stories and his life, and they're writing the script, and he is the actor, in a sense, performing well, his he, own role. And the, it must real be Harvey, really strange for him. Yeah, the real Harvey is an iteration of the Harveys. Of all these other Harveys. Of all these exactly. other Harveys. And also, the, I wanted to mention that in the comic books panel sequences of this credit sequence, there was art, we believe it was drawn by Doug Allen, who did some of the animation later on in the movie, aping the styles of R. Crumb, Joe Zabel, and Gary Shamray. Who, of course, are, are illustrators who figure prominently in the early work of Harvey. And a lot of the stories, as we'll get into as we move forward in the movie, I'll talk about the actual comics mm-hmm. that were the inspirations for a number of scenes in the film. And those artists in particular worked with Harvey a lot. And a lot of those stories end up coming into this film. Well, like, I guess the, I, none, none of the credit sequence is from any uh, of Harvey's comics, except maybe the Harvey Picard name story. I mean, it's, story. It's, it's evoked because that's a famous story where it's basically just a single shot of a character scene from like the mid shoulders up talking right. directly to the reader. Right. But those scenes are not actually from Any that com- comic. From that comic. Because it was right. an early 
it was an early, that that's an early piece of Harvey's. We'll definitely talk about it later on in the film because mm-hmm. it's a major scene in the movie. Mm-hmm. But the way that Crumb drew Harvey, or the way Harvey asked Crumb to draw him at that point, was a very generic kind of like Joe America sort yeah. of guy. It didn't look like Harvey. Yep. So it's interesting because in the credits, I believe it's Doug Allen. I'm, I'm sure somebody knows, and we could find this out. Right. But <laughs> um, he do, he apes uh, Crumb's style, but draws it in in a way that I'd never seen that exact comic right. done. I mean, before. he's basically drawing a Crumb version of Harvey. Right. That's more recognizably Harvey Picar than the actual name story was right. drawn as Joe America. Exactly. Right. And quickly, I wanted to also bring up a couple of the names in the credits. Sure. Uh, besides the producer Ted Hope. He's the guy that I was an assistant to and gave him the idea of doing, you know, hey, you should make a movie with Harvey Picar about American Splendor. Lo and behold, you know, this is what happened. But we can talk about that later. Just yeah. getting back to that credit sequence, it's it's funny because, well, I have a couple of memories from, from seeing the movie for the first mm-hmm. time because um, you and I were at the premiere in mm-hmm. New York. And one is when that sequence came on with the kid character sort of trans- morphing into Paul Giamatti, who right. was Harvey, and then it the scene kind of like zooming out and us seeing that now we're looking at him through a comic book panel. Right. And then it just became panel to panel. Right. And each panel would transition, would start out as a frozen moment and then come to life and sure. be a little visual thing. I remember thinking like, at the same time, like, oh, that is so brilliant and yet also so obvious of a, <laughs> of a device yeah. to make a, a movie. It, to make a movie about a comic book, but right. I just remember feeling both of those feelings at the same time, like, oh, of course, right. yeah. Right. But like, I don't know if I'd ever seen that done before, and I think they did a really great job of it. I'm sure it's been, it has been done I'm before, sure it probably has, technically. Like, but what it, what it was doing was, I think, letting the audience know early on, this movie is going to be a mashup mm-hmm. of comics. Paul Giamatti, Harvey Picar, you know, versus the real Harvey Picar as told through the lens of the filmmakers. You know, like like you were suggesting, like Harvey was so used to being having such control as, as the comic book writer and publisher of his own series, which we, we identified in a previous conversation that he was publishing these once a year, mm-hmm. the first 16 issues. So the first 16 years, this was like an annual affair. Yep. You know? And I think they came out in May of every year. So it was exactly one year from, you know, the publication of one to the next. And I'm just so curious, like, did he mail them to specific comic shops? Did he have actual distribution? I, 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 wish I believe I knew. he did have distribution because um, there were a lot there were a lot more distributors back then. That's true. And I think he had like a deal with a couple of the smaller ones, but they they took care of him. Right. So I think he was getting good distribution. Right. I mean, we happen to both live in New York City, and and there were a number of different comic shops to choose from. And yeah. of course, the irony is I didn't start collecting American Splendor until much later on, so I wouldn't even have known if it was at our local comic shop because I wasn't looking for comics like that. I was only reading superhero comics. But you did back reach then. out to him before I did. And what year was that? Do you remember? That would have been ninety four, early nineteen ninety four. And yeah. that was at post. That was when cancer? he had just started. That was after. Um, he had had cancer. Our cancer year had not yet come out, but mm-hmm. he was just starting to be published by Dark Horse, so he wasn't publishing, self-publishing anymore. Because in the, in the credits, it acknowledges that this movie is based is adapting the original American Splendor series as well as our cancer year. Right. Right. Oh, I, I just had to mention one other thing too what? about the credits. 
it's kind of pathetic, but I was wondering if you had the same feeling. Mm. Like I remember at the moment that I was sitting in the theater watching the movie and seeing these credits come on that were comic book panels and then seeing these various versions of uh, Harvey being mm. portrayed that I had this moment of wondering, are they going to show one of my one panels? Of <laughs> one of my, Even though I knew that nothing in the movie took place in the period that when I was illustrating yeah. Harvey Picard, I still had this kind of little bit of hope did you have that at all or you just knew already that that wasn't i i mean i i saw the movie this for the first time the same time as you did and and because i had done so little with harvey except help get this movie made yeah other, you know? other than that other little, than that, <laughs> little thing i think i had drawn three to five pages worth of oh America's wow okay. not much right, at right. all so you hadn't done you the know? quitter yet obviously and i hadn't done the quitter yet right so like i had a couple of little i i i was technically an american splendor artist by doing a few pages but right. nothing substantial at all you had done a lot more than that's me. funny I but it, but you do wonder and in fact you know some of my art does show up specifically made for the movie later on yes, which we'll talk we'll to get about to later that. um don't jump ahead that's right but so i knew i was gonna have something in there <laughs> but yes. I, didn't, I didn't think i'd have any of this uh, so you knew yeah. you had something in there whereas i had this that's pathetic right. hope that's right that of course was crushed <laughs> the story of my life so yeah, just a few more things about the credits that I think, again, are just, they seem so obvious now, and we've both seen this movie so many times that mm -hmm. it's not a surprise, but they are, it, it's like you always have to kind of throw yourself back into the persona of somebody who maybe had never heard of Harvey Picard, had never right. read American Splendor, and and was sitting down and watching a movie that they happened to walk into or read a good review of, but didn't know much about, mm -hmm. sort of what, what their expectations are now being set up for, mm -hmm. and... First of all, there's, you know, the comic book panels coming to life and this sort of interesting mixture of documentary footage, cartooning, uh, real people, but also this jittery, nervous jazz music that really, mm -hmm. I, I've always kind of been irritated by that music. Mm -hmm. It's not really my type of jazz and I'm right. not really a big jazz guy, but it, it really has like this kind of propulsive nervousness that captures... It has a sense of menace. His, There's yeah, a sense of menace very, for some reason. very much. It's not like it's a... brooding. It's not a, you know, a cheerful, upbeat kind of like, here's right. this story you're going to see. Right. Um, and it sort of really captures this character who we've already been introduced to as a kid is kind of an unpleasant person seems like <laughs> um and continues to be unpleasant. and continue as we're watching him walk through this depressive depressing yep. depressed city we see him making weird faces and walking around with his Scratching hands in his, his pockets or, and just kind yeah. of looking around like he wants yeah. to hit somebody and it just definitely betrays most people's expectations of like sitting down and watching a comedy or something. I mean, it just sets it up as like, oh, okay, this mm -hmm. is not like your average Hollywood film. Right. And yeah, just it, it also... Yeah, the colors are gray and the brown. The colors are gray and brown. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's all like factories and yeah. and like empty yards and old yeah. cars. And it even says toward the end before the slam cut into the you know faux documentary yeah. uh, uh, arena in the movie it says if you're looking for a comedy or a romance mm -hmm. you've come to the wrong movie yeah totally i yeah. mean it just puts it right out there. and i guess because american splendor yes that's what i wanted to get to the the, I, the irony of the title american yes. splendor done in that um, action comics type script yep is so great because it is the perfect ironic counterpoint to what these right. comic stories are actually about. Which is what the comic 
was basically exactly about you know and and i have to say i i might have mentioned this last time but i have been on this kick recently of reading a bunch of underground comics I, my dad had a whole bunch of of you actual underground like 70s yeah and, the actual okay. original underground comics from the late 60s early 70s and i have to say that given what the subject matter was of most of those comics which can i presume can sh- about drugs sure. yeah. women i mean sex mm-hmm. drugs politics yeah, a little bit of politics. Okay. A couple of artists sort of had a political axe to grind, but a lot of it was just like, you know, excuses for outrageous tales of sex and violence right. and ju- drug humor and a lot of just light-hearted humor, like kind of silly, mm-hmm. light stuff. Well, and, I mean, the alternative to superheroes is escapism. Yeah. Would have been the, these kind of comics. Right. And it was, you know, I mean, it, I don't want to underplay how important underground comics were to the history of comics because right. of how they gave a whole new generation, like a voice and artists a chance to do styles and subject matters that were never accepted and not approved by the comics code and all that. But I have to say that what Harvey was doing with American Splendor is made even more apparent how revolutionary it was. Sure by looking at those other comics and kind of seeing what was out there at that time. Because what he was doing was telling actual people's actual life stories, not trying to give some added layer of no extra candy coat. entertainment like, like or candy coating. Exactly. Reading some of the earlier car his own portrayal of himself mm-hmm. he's kind of a jerk yeah you know and he's willing to show that and and we know that he is the one who is saying this so he's not he's very like aware said, not sugarcoating it he's not heroic in exactly his own, in exactly stories, and right. I, it's just important for me to say that because in a sense since i came along later and harvey's stuff was sort of part of the mix of what else was going on in the 90s and mm. so many other comics autobiographical comics were so big back then like, like let's throw some examples out like uh joe matt joe matt uh julie Doucet, uh, julie Doucet, jessica abel mm-hmm. uh i think bob fingerman might have been doing some stuff in the 90s yeah, i believe sure, with sure. Wage. Chester Brown, Chester obviously. Brown. So those people all were, even if they didn't know it, they all have to harken back to what Harvey started doing Absolutely. back in 1976 with American Splendor. And yes. I only now kind of really appreciate mm-hmm. what a what a big deal that was at the time. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I just have to say that. Yeah, so... Did you observe anything else in that sequence that maybe I missed? No, I think that pretty much covers the credits part and then the segueing into this sort of fake documentary scene where we now meet the real Harvey for the first time. Right. Okay, so first of all, his voice. I mean, the first time you hear his voice, it almost sounds like an old lady or something. I, I did not even recognize it as as a man or as Harvey Picar. Yeah. It was almost like the old Crypt Keeper or something from like this <clears throat> But I do wonder because, because of the way it transitions to the yeah, it's a too scene perfect. Of, about a voice, yeah. about a breaking voice that's yeah. not working. I almost wonder if they played that up a little bit. I, I, you I, mean like did something with the no, they, they might sound said, design? Hey, Harvey, like, you know, this is going to transition. So maybe I don't think so though, because I remember I mean, when we were talking to him at that time that his scratchy. voice was definitely yeah. going, you know. Yeah. So it was just one of those weird coincidences that was so perfect. Yeah. But so we see Harvey for the first time because the other time we saw him in the credits, he was like far away and walking. We don't even necessarily know. It's yeah, we him. don't. We don't really know it's him. It's, it's something I picked up on because he, they don't really show his face. And like yeah. you said, this, this like suddenly 
this appearance of the real guy. Right. So we've seen Paul Giamatti playing right. Harvey, a younger version of Harvey. And now right. here we see the and real Harvey yet. Picard. Paul Giamatti hasn't spoken right. yet. Has not spoken yet. Uh, he has as a child. Right. You know, where right. he's pissed off. Sure. But uh, we just see him be pissed off. Yeah. And then the first time we hear uh, adult Harvey is the real Harvey. And then he's kind of humanized by orange soda. <laughs> Which I think, you know, if you've, if you've entered this weird realm, you mm-hmm. know, where he's recording and you realize, oh, this is the real guy. Like, is this really the real guy? Like, yeah. I guess it is, right? For the people who don't know him. And then it was brilliant to, like, humanize him by saying, hey, do you want some water? He's like, no, don't. I, I have orange soda. Yeah. And so, what be- do you, so what was your take on that? That that was a device of the film I, to... I, I, it's probably a device. It's funny. Yeah. You know? But I do think it gave us something uh, or gave the audience something to just latch on to and, and you know what happens you start thinking oh what's my favorite soda mm-hmm. you know and then that's the conversation just the f- even it's cute there's something about something a grown cute. man right. who likes orange soda that just sort of who's makes cranky him, yeah he's cranky but he likes his orange yeah, soda. yeah you're right you know? and you of course remember what food they had at the opening party right uh orange soda orange soda and, and white do- castle hamburgers and, and i believe donuts <laughs> and i remember at the at the premiere party where they had all that food, I was happy because that's the kind of <laughs> crap that I like to eat and drink. Yeah. But I remember going up to Harvey and saying something like, trying to be cute, like, hey, Harvey, you right. got your favorite stuff here. And he's like, I don't drink any of that stuff anymore. I'm vegan now. I got to eat healthy. <laughs> <laughs> I got to eat healthy. And it was like, oh, so they've totally patronized this poor guy. Like, he's not even, that's not even the food he actually eats. No. It's like a... Yeah. a cute cuddly version of harvey but the one other thing i wanted to say was just like what was your again we knew the real guy and we were there at the movie with him but when you see him on screen for the first time there's something about him that's not just your average person like he there is something a little cool or weird or a little off when you first see this guy his eyes are definitely super intense well he's a he's a true character yeah he can't help himself yeah you know that's what you're looking at and and, you know, even if you get comfortable, uh, as we did, you know, collaborating with him and talking to him on the phone a lot and even hanging out around him, you know, you still have to acknowledge the fact that he was always peculiar and always just a little off, yeah. you know, and that's And there was something just when you're talking to him and looking at him that, that gives you a clue to that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I do have to mention, so yeah, we, we talked about this already, how he was kind of thrown off in a, in a sense by having to read this script that's him speaking in the first person that was written by other people. Right. But some of the language from that script was actually taken from a actual Harvey Picard comic, which so I just want to mention. So you're talking about the nar- narrative uh, that's shown in the comics part of the credit sequence. I can't quite remember if it comes in then or if it's... Yeah, I, I guess part as, of it is as, where as, he says, so this is our man, Harvey Picard. And, he, and our man is, is being said by the real Harvey Picard. Right. Right. But uh, some of that language was sort of paraphrased from a story called An Argument at Work, which appeared in American Splendor number no. four and was mm-hmm. illustrated by Gary Shamray. Mm-hmm. And that came out in 1979. So as we move forward, the uh, listeners will start hearing me talking about the various stories and, right. and when they were originally done. So that's the first one that sort of explicitly referenced... Yeah, we'll be talking more about those. But as as you mentioned before, Gary Shamray was the artist for right. that. And he's one of the artists whose work is either lifted or aped by Doug Allen, Doug Allen for this. But uh, I, mean, I believe it's Doug Allen. I know he was one of the artists, if not the artist, that was the, the lead artist on the animation. Yeah. So the only other thing I wanted to mention about the documentary 
aspect, the fake doc thing, mm -hmm. is that the filmmakers talk specifically about how they shot those scenes in high definition, whereas the rest of the movie was shot on uh, normal film. And they wanted to give it sort of a different veneer. So it kind of took you out of the narrative and sort of brought you into this documentary setting and, and sort of Wait, tripped so, your brain. So, so the documentary bit. sequence is high def? It's HD, yeah. Because it does look weird. Yeah. You know? And, uh, you know, it's set up on this, like, white set with these, like, folding chairs in the background and right. kind of old reel-to-reel tapes with and, like, a technician. And, and, yeah, it's, yeah. like, a very, like, artificial kind of setting with Harvey sitting at an old mic with reel-to-reel -reel tapes and right. stuff. And I did find it hilarious because there's, there's, it's all set up. Like, it's so artificial. I felt it was corny when I first... I remember my really? initial gut I was feeling. a little kind of thrown off by it, too. I just, yeah. I just felt like the, the setting was corny. Mm -hmm. But then I'm like, well... What would I have done if if I'm trying to acknowledge that you know we're in this kind of like phantom zone or negative zone? Exactly, with it's, the a, real it's Harvey. like a, it's like a a product of the writing of the film. It's like if they are setting up a scenario where every once in a while they're going to step out of it right. and talk to the real Harvey, they need to you give know what visual cues to the reader. I, I mean, I, I mean to the to the viewer. To the viewer, I, it might even be acknowledging the gutters between the panels. Mm. If you think about it, that space. Uh huh. You know, because it's borderless. If you if you look at the way it's set up, the space, it's there's no uh, ceiling. And there's no, there, I mean, you might see a bookshelf or you like, you know, you see a person in the background or, or some chairs or props, but it, there, you didn't know where you were. So it almost feels like it was in between the panels, you know. This, I love this, it. That's this great. Zone, you yeah. Know? So and that's the first course, time I thought about it too. You are a smart man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that gets into the whole uh, discussion of the gutter that, that Scott McCloud talks about where the gutter is such an important space between panels because it's sort of where the reader's inferences come into play and they become part of the storytelling in a sense and they're the filling in those gaps yep. between these two static images and kind of making them all work together and making associations yep. and so that's really interesting and scott mcleod of course is, is a cartoonist who was famous for uh, uh writing under uh, and drawing understanding comics which ironically came out i think the same year as our cancer year so two really, really important oh, wow. books came out around the same time oh. Really quickly, I just wanted to mention the writers, filmmakers mm -hmm. of the film, because this film is actually a really interesting uh, stepping stone for them, because before this film, Sherry Springer-Berman and Robert Polcini um, had done a couple of documentaries, and then they mm -hmm. did this movie, which sort of is part documentary and part a comedy drama film, and then they went on after this to transition to start doing comedies and dramas and they don't do documentaries anymore. So they don't do documentaries. And I do know, and we'll get to their credits in a second, but uh, one of the filmmakers that was considered for American Splendor and ultimately didn't do it. And I forget why, but again, I knew no Ted Hope. So I, I was privy to this information was the documentarian who made American movie. Hmm, I don't know that film. It's a fantastic movie. It's about a guy in a small town uh, trying to raise funds to make his uh, feature horror film. And it's called American Movie. It's incredible. You should check it out sometime. Uh, anyway, I don't know why they that filmmaker, whose name escapes me... Uh, Chris Smith? Yeah, Does that well, that, sound right? That, that's, if that's the, that's the poster that yeah. you just brought up, then yes, uh, it would be Chris Smith. So again, I don't know why. Maybe the, the you know Polcini and Berman had a better proposal. I don't know. I mean, obviously, 
it's such a, a revolutionary film, you know, uh, uh, and how they made it. You're talking about American Splendor. American Splendor, yeah. yes. I mean, American movie is fantastic, but American Splendor is, is just next level in terms of filmmaking, you know, even to this day. So, and I don't know who else was in the running for possibly directing this film. Well, I know that there had been attempts and, and like, yes. you know, to make the movie over many years prior to this, uh, maybe more than 10 years. There'd been talks of making a T, an HBO show or a right. Showtime show for a while. There'd been various directors who'd come and gone. I think right. Jonathan Demme at one point really? was interested in making an American Splendor movie. So there were previous attempts to make this film and at one point in the... 1990s the comedian rob schneider actually was attached to the film but i don't know if they at that point they had a script or a director i believe i remember when i was ted hope's assistant and cleaning stuff up at his house that i came across an american splendor script oh, that wow. might have been for rob schneider or co-written by him i can't remember okay but there was an uh, there was a script okay before Ted went on to, and, and maybe even Ted showed that script to the, the filmmakers and they said, no, let's just scrap and do right. a new thing. Well, I yeah, don't know. that's the other thing is I know that Harvey was actually, had been actually paid to write a script right. based on his comics to make into a movie and he worked on it for a while and then never really was able to put it together. And right. and so that's maybe when Springer and, uh, and maybe that's also Puccini came on board. And when he's acknowledging that he, or, or stating that he hasn't really read the script and we checked it for its construction, I wonder if that's him also removing himself from, you know, any inaccuracies in the movie so that, if, you know, friends and family came up to him afterwards and was like, hey, you got that wrong or what's that about? And he's like, oh, I just, I just acted, you know, it's their movie, not mine, you know? Totally. So, yeah, one other thing just about that was, yeah, I, I found that very, like, unbelievable, but yet totally believable that Harvey was there to record the scene for the film that was mm -hmm. going to be in the movie mm -hmm. and he hadn't actually bothered to read the script like it, it, that closely and was just reading it for the first time like fresh i mean i guess i can understand that because he didn't want to appear like he was acting himself I, I think it's part of harvey's weird comedy yeah you know like that's part of his sense of humor yeah. i think i mean you, he just does not do things by the book no matter what he doesn't do anything by the yeah. book or he doesn't like again he probably scrutinized the hell of that script, couldn't do too much about it, let's say. Right. And then he washed his hands of it. Right. Even though it's a great movie. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine he, you know, probably would have changed this part or that part or whatever sure. if he had his druthers, you right. know. But at the end of the day, you know, you let it go. You sign a contract that says you're not one sure. of the writers, you're not the producer or the director. And you just have to let it That's go. Right. Yeah. You're just a character in your own You're story. You're a character in your own story. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I mean, as someone who makes a living uh, as a comics journalist where I'm telling other people's stories for them, and I feel like I try to do that with as much conscientiousness as I can mm -hmm. and try to be truthful to what I think, you know, their story is... I can only imagine how weird it would be if I found myself the topic in someone else's comic. Well, it's it's interesting you say that because you do mostly nonfiction journalism comics now. But when we were making comics together back in the, was it 95 or whatever, when we started Keyhole as a little, you mm -hmm. know, stapled, you know, uh, Xerox mini comics, you did more uh, autobio, mm -hmm. you know, and travel stories and other things. And... You know, you were the hero of your own stories, you know, for lack of a better term. And That's true. Yeah. What stopped? When did you stop doing writing and drawing stories about yourself and why? 
Well, clearly I was inspired by Harvey Picar and yeah. by American Splendor to do those kind of stories. And also because when we started back in those days, I, I really had no background in writing whatsoever. And mm -hmm. I remember actually you gave me a copy or you directed me to David Mamet's uh, little book on directing film right. as a way to, you know, start thinking about how to structure stories and stuff and how a lot of the lessons from that book um, really translate, you know, very well mm -hmm. to comics. Mm -hmm. And it was really helpful. But, you know, the old adage, you write what you know. So what I, I had just come back from uh, traveling all around the world with mm -hmm. my girlfriend, now my wife, and um, there were some good stories there, you know, some funny or scary or interesting stories that had happened mm -hmm. that I didn't have to make up because they had actually happened. So that made my job as a writer a lot easier. Mm -hmm. And I was getting into American Splendor and, and David Greenberger's Duplex Planet at mm -hmm. that point and really loving this idea of telling stories about real people in real lives. So... It all pointed in that direction of, of telling those stories. But at a certain point, I kind of ran out of those stories to tell hmm. and was also in a way just kind of losing interest in my own stories, like kind of getting more interested in other people's stories that were more exciting, more interesting, more neurotic, more crazy. Mm -hmm. I remember there was some review of one of my of my travel collection where someone said, you know, uh, Josh Newfield is working in the in the tradition of of a, of a Woody Allen or of a Harvey Picar, but what makes their stories work so well is that they're just such deep, deeply neurotic people that their internal lives make for really interesting narratives because they're so crazy. Right. Um, and Josh Newfeld seems too well balanced, <laughs> or at least not willing enough to reveal that side of himself to That's make his stories as interesting. And I had to admit, when I read that, I was kind of like, you know, maybe they're right. Like, either I'm just not willing to go as far right. as 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 a Joe Matt, you know, right. or a, right. or a um, Chester Brown or a Harvey Picar, right. or I'm just not you know, my life is not the subject of an interesting comic. So that's when I started to kind of get more interested in other people's stories. And that led more into journalism. And I just found it a lot more fulfilling to tell those kind of stories. But with that distance, I mean, when was the last time you wrote a substantial autobio comic and drew it? Ooh, it's been a while. So do you think you have one? Do you have a new one, Josh Newfeld? <laughs> I, I probably do, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, it, but it, I mean, I'm I, I'm I'm working on a new book project now, which I'm not really right. able to talk about yet. But that does touch on that for sure. So, right. yeah, I mean, I feel like maybe my the future is sort of a combination of a memoir slash reportage kind of piece. So, so the best of know. both worlds that you dabbled, you know, with early on. Yeah, you know, but I I have tried like forcing it sometimes, like trying to find a story of mine and then like kind of forcing a narrative onto it or a larger meaning thing and it just hasn't really felt right or just hmm. hasn't worked so are you nervous to reveal things about and expose yourself do you feel Especially i think i today? am more than i was 10 years ago okay. yeah just because which ironic which is ironic in a way because maybe you're reacting to the internet age in a way because everyone is uh, well the people who who partake in social networking tend to reveal too much about themselves there's too much information <laughs> yeah you know that is true and then yeah and, and then do you compete with that or you just reject it wholly and go you know what i'm i'm, I'm just gonna keep this one for me remember the yeah. the famous scene in uh saving private ryan mm -hmm. with tom hanks and mm -hmm. it's, the, it's the third act and and the tanks are going to come and everything and they're they're talking about the memories uh that they're sharing you know before the, maybe the end here 
I think but, it was they they had a pool going about where he was from and what his job was mm, back home, and mm. he would never reveal that. Right. And uh, but then he, there's something that happens where he talks about his wife, right, or girlfriend. right, right. And just as he's about to reveal, he's like, "No, I'm going to keep that one for me." That yeah, that's a great me. moment. Yeah. So maybe that's maybe you're kind of responding in that way to your, you know. I don't life. know. I mean, I feel like if there were a good enough story that just had to be told, you know, mm-hmm. and there may be like when time passes when he, by. When you start seal killing. Yeah, you know, that might be the time <laughs> to explain to the world. Yeah. <laughs> but listen, I the the what I wanted to talk to you about because mm-hmm. it's so interesting, you know. So in in the opening credits where we get these shots of Cleveland, this American, the opposite of American splendor, it's this sort of falling apart, rust belt city that they're really pushing. And that is, in a way, so emblematic of this character of Harvey Picard, like the city of Cleveland fits him really well. You know, it's Mm -hmm. this, it's this uh, third tier city, so Mm -hmm. to speak, or a city that at one point, you know, was chugging along, but by the time of of Harvey's comics has mm-hmm. kind of settled into this rust belt, uh, mm-hmm. you know, depressed place. Um, uh, it was before LeBron James and and the Cleveland Cavaliers mm-hmm. winning a title, and it was it was a city not many people. It's not like you travel from somewhere else to move to Cleveland. Mm-hmm. I have no offense, Cleveland, but that's you know, right. it wasn't New York or Chicago or L.A. Right. And Harvey Picar, who is this workaday guy who works at a veterans hospital and just tries to get by and has some failed marriages, mm-hmm. and it, it just fits so well. So your work deals a lot with cities as characters mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Trip City, Brooklyn mm-hmm. in the Red Hook. And I just right. wondered if you want to talk at all about, do you go into your own comics thinking about a city or an urban space as a character of its own and how that impacts the char- the, the real characters and the storyline itself? Well, I think when you do memoir or semi-autobiographical or autobiographical comics, you know, and wherever you live, that becomes a character because... You know, it's what streets do you walk or where do you swim or where do you yell or eat or whatever, you know. And I think it's always going to be some kind of character. And and I think with Harvey, he was so associated with Cleveland. In fact, from off the streets of Cleveland comes Harvey Picard and American Splendor. I mean, it's it's in his own pitch. You know, Mm -hmm. he talks about Cleveland. And and I don't know if necessarily he was trying to honor it or criticize it, you know, probably both you know, in his works. But I think that whenever I've dabbled with Autobio specifically, it, you know, the city is a part of what's happening. I think a lot of people write about what's happening uh, inside their houses. I tend to write about what's outside the door, hmm. you know, and, and, you know, what happens the minute you step out your door and, and cause you know, you can't control that, you know, not that you can necessarily control what's happening in your home sometimes, but you have a better shot at it. And so I think that that's always been interesting to me and, and to the point where a lot of stories have happened to me outside my door, you know, and so that's what I, t- you know, tend to write and draw. Uh, but with that in mind, I also grew up loving superhero comics, specifically Marvel superhero comics, which took place in real spaces. Right. Spider-Man in Queens, the Fantastic Four lived in Midtown, Doctor Strange was on Bleecker Street in the village, you know, so on and so forth. Which was a big change, like basically superhero comics before 1961 right. all took place in these made-up cities, Gotham, right. Metropolis, Central right. City, right. Star City, all these goofy names. And you knew what they were, but they weren't, you know, they didn't have the same addresses as the ones that we know, right. you know? But I also, I mean, who's the other great, you could argue was was writing and drawing memoir-esque stories is uh, Will Eisner, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. and. 
oh my God, a lot of his comics are about the city, you know, people in the city and, and how I the think architecture... it's a made-up city too, though, isn't it, in, in the Spirit comics? It, well, the Spirit, but I'm also talking about like when he started doing graphic novels oh, in right. the 70s and, right, you know, right. uh, Contract Tenement with Stories God. Stories and, and Contract with God. Tenement right? Stories. Sure, sure. A lot of his work, you know, uh, architecture in the city was, and, and but even in the Spirit, the city was a character as well as the, the title treatment sure. was a character, you know, architecture. So I think I'm responding to that and then, you you know, reading Frank Miller's Daredevil, you know, mm-hmm. and those comics and where the city is just a part of everything. So I think... So it's like an extra tool in your toolbox that you were like, I'm going to use this. It's, I'm a, gonna, char- it's yeah. a character. It's anthropomorphized in a mm-hmm. lot of ways, you know, and, and to the point where I did do that with the Red Hook, where Brooklyn secedes physically, literally to start its own republic as New Brooklyn because it's sentient and it's reacting to the world, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I don't know. I, I, I like to take on that kind of stuff. There was, a, there was a really fun movie called Dark City. I think it came out like 15 some odd years ago where the city was alive. And like, uh, I don't really remember the plot, but I remember specifically there were scenes where like late at night when everyone was sleeping, uh, the city would shift around and you'd wake up in a different area of the city or maybe in a different apartment because of the way the city was moving around. Oh, I love that. It's, it's so much fun. So, yeah, I mean, I, I always try to acknowledge the city. It's an essential aspect of my work. But like when you create a character, a Billy Dogma, say, right. like, do you know right away, okay, he's got to live in this other city that I'm going to make up that's going to also have all of these details and other inhabitants and and other villains and heroes who, who are going to be part of that universe. Like you, you're a world builder. You're not just like creating one character right. and then sort of seeing what happens. Like you, you, do you have all of that in mind and that helps to inform the With, character and the stories? Um, not always right there and then, but I realize at some point, you know, they live somewhere. Right. You know, there's a space that, yeah. they, they, you know, they dwell and, and, and experience and there's going to be conflict and where's the conflict coming from. Yeah. Uh, with Billy Dogma, I eventually created a city that I felt was like not bigger than a 20 block radius. Oh, really? Interesting. And, and in, in a lot of ways, it was like a cross between Red Hook and Pompeii. <laughs> you know, and then recently, post, uh, volcano the post or volcano <laughs> pump it. But recently, I've even alluded to, and I've actually drawn this out that it's actually a god that has fallen of sorts into the dirt and has basically the head has exploded, and the, the top of the head is spilled out this little 20 block radius city that he lives in oh man and so it's like in this weird desert that's great you know and and see uh, you're just a born fiction teller (laughs) i mean like this kind of stuff when i used to make up my own stories i would forget that there was even weather happening like i'd have to remember (laughs) it it was hard enough just for me to write like a character and his problem right and a villain or something but like Right. You know, you, you, I love this stuff. Like you well, just, I it mean, all comes, a new story comes to you and then you're like, okay, well he lives in a place and the place has this. And then there's, you know. Well, what you're talking I about is that. possibility. Yeah. And I love to excavate possibility and like what could happen, you know, throw, and if you have a strong enough character, uh, the way you perpetuate that character is to surround it with possibility. Mm-hmm. So what happens next? Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, I'm glad we got to talk about that a little bit because I think that's always something that really sticks out about your work. But we've gone a little bit far afield from uh, this scene, but uh, that's kind of part of the point of this podcast. That's right. And I think we should wrap it up. And remember, you can visit us at scenebyscenepodcast.com and Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean on Facebook. And we look forward to seeing you next time for episode three of Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean.